This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Jesus put before the crowds another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast the woman took and mixed in, mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all this? I doubt it. But they answered, yes. <laughs> And he said to them, Therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. You all can have a seat. Oh, good morning, Christ the King. Uh, welcome to church, everybody. It's so good to have you with us, if we've not yet uh, had a chance to meet, uh, hi, my name's Ashley, I'm uh, the priest and pastor here, and we are so thrilled to have you with us uh, for church this morning. Uh, before we spend time uh, looking at Matthew's gospel, uh, I have a few things. I want to take just a couple of minutes to talk about um, our life together as a church, and not housekeeping exactly, I hope um, more exciting than that. Um, over the summer, our uh, staff has been hard at work preparing uh, not just for the fall, but preparing for the future, just uh, sort of in general, like who we're going to be and where we're going to go and um, all that's ahead of us. Uh, so much has happened, y'all, in the past year. Um, I had my one-year Christ the King anniversary in June, and um, to say that a lot has changed is like, an, you know, it's a an understatement. To say that this is um, so much more than Josh and I could have ever begun to, as the verse says, hope for or imagine, um, is more like it. Uh, we are so thrilled by what's happening in the life of this church. When we came um, a year ago, uh, Isaiah wasn't here, and Jake wasn't here, and Chris wasn't here, and um, there wasn't a staff, there wasn't a building. Um, there was, however, a very faithful remnant of people who have been holding it down for a long time as Anglicans here in Northwest Arkansas, praying really faithfully. And it has been one of the greatest blessings of my life with Jesus, getting to watch the Lord in his faithfulness, like respond to their faithful prayers. And so for those of you who are here, you know who you are. Thank you for holding it down. Thank you for being the remnant that the rest of us could come and, and rally around and have a chance, therefore, to watch God do something that's so new and so exciting. Uh, when I left Atlanta 
uh, where, you know, I was in a job where I could have been for the rest of my life and would have made a lot of sense for me to stay there for the rest of my life. And I had a lot of people ask, why are you going to there? Um, one, I'm offended because I'm a native Arkansan, and we all know it's the best-kept secret on the planet. Am I right? This is a beautiful and wonderful place. And I wasn't really offended. But I did get to smile and say, because, you know, I signed up for this thing with Jesus, and I think more than any job or more than anything else, I just want to see him do stuff that I still believe he can do. And it has been so great to get to watch him do stuff that I still believe he can do in and through this church. So what a gift. We are growing as a church. And that doesn't just mean in the ways that we can see. One of the things that we've been talking about as a staff is growth, the good kind. And we should know this, this is our great green growing season after all. The good kind of growth, the best kind, is the deep down kind. It's the roots. What cracks the seed open? Not the fruit, not the shoot. What cracks the seed open is the roots in search of water. And so what I want to say to all of you who have been maybe in and out or coming around, or maybe you're new and this is your first Sunday, and if that's you, um, you, you can just be here. <laughs> We're so glad you're here. But for those of you who've been around for a while, and maybe since that God has drawn you into the life of this church, um, I do believe, and I am careful to say things with certainty, but I feel increasingly sure and certain that God is drawing people around what he is doing here at Christ the King. And if you feel like you are being drawn into that, praise God. What a gift that we get to do that together. Um, we're going to grow roots. That's what this next season of our life is about. It's about growing down, deepening, becoming the people that we're meant to be. Because, y'all, otherwise, this becomes a show and a production that we gather together and circle around on Sundays. And I won't have it, and you won't have it, and the faithful remnant that have been praying for this church for years won't have it. The Lord won't have it. It's not a show. It's not a production. We are the church. So whatever it is that God is drawing us all into, he's drawing all of us into it. Because he has something that he wants to do through us as a community, through us corporately, and also through us individually. What an exciting thing to get to be a part of. A beautiful thing. And so part of putting down roots is going to look like us committing to one another, to being the church together. Deep down stuff. And so there are a couple of really practical things that I want to put in front of you. Um, the first is this. It is possible, if not probable that we are going to be in the coming weeks preparing for an additional morning service to make space out there in our parking lot and back there in our kids' rooms primarily because we want to be a hospitable place and we want to, in Jesus' name, have a permanent home, a permanent um, spirit-filled Anglican presence in northwest Arkansas. I really believe that the Lord would like to give that to this community. And if you don't yet even know what that means, that's okay. You don't have to. But I'm very excited about it. Our staff is very excited about it. And the only way that we get to there, to having a more permanent home, is to make some space so that we can be together. And that's going to require all of us um, pitching in and making it happen on Sundays, and I believe growing together outside of Sundays. It's not just about what happens here for an hour, 
But what happens here for an hour is really important. We're going to have to, in effect, sort of like double all of the people who show up on Sunday mornings to help us be the church and to make worship happen. Our volunteers in those kids' rooms out here, all of that, we're going to be doubling it likely over the next few weeks. And so for these next few weeks, we're just like sitting tight and we're praying and hopefully being led by the Spirit. But if in a few weeks you hear us say, all right, Joel, it's time. We're going to add another service. Um, then you'll know. You heard it first here, and we've been preparing our hearts for what might be coming. In the meantime, and honestly, regardless of whether or not we add another service, we need more of us to be serving on Sundays. We just do. Some of you all have been very faithfully serving in our kids' rooms back there on Sundays, and we love you, and we are so grateful. We want to do this in ways that are healthy and sustainable, which means that we're all going to have to pitch in. Um, Don't recommend to me that we hire babysitters. I am, like, morally opposed to it. Because this is not an event or show. We are the church. My seven-year-old has started reading his Bible on his own because Elise de Vilder showed him how to look up chapters and verses. That's going to change his life and my life. We are the church. It's not babysitting that we're doing. We're going to grow up to be the men and women God's called us to be, and then we're going to raise them up to be the men and women God's called them to be. We are his body. And so I would like to invite you to come and grow deep roots with us, to be a part of that. It's a very sacred and special thing. Miss Debbie taught me to read my Bible. Miss Sandy taught me how to do sword drills. And John Hendricks, who was my youth pastor, he wore socks with Birkenstocks. And he taught me that I could hear the Holy Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit weren't just in the New Testament, that they could be mine, that I could pray for healing. And I've never forgotten them. They changed my life. We are the church. So that's the invitation to you. The second part of it's a practical thing. On the 20th of August, we're going to do a members meeting here. And if you're like, am I a member? (laughs) You're not alone. Um, We would like to explain membership to you here and what it means for us to really belong to one another. So at 4.30 on the 20th, you'll hear more details later, we're all going to come together and talk about what it means to be a member of Christ the King. And by then, we'll know we're adding another worship service or we're not. But we would love for you to go ahead and mark your calendars so that you know that that's happening. All right, that was this, the announcements sermon so that you all could know what's happening in the life of the church. Now we're going to do the gospel sermon. Uh, all right, Matthew's gospel. Before we... Um, Before we shift gears, let's pray. Uh, Holy Spirit, thank you, God, for the gift of the church, for this church, these people. I ask you now, Holy Spirit, that you would, Lord, in a way that really only you can, uh, draw us to you, Lord. Your word says when you are lifted up that you draw people to yourself, and that's not an individual I people, that's a we people. I pray that you would draw us up, Lord, together individually and corporately, to be your body, to belong to something, Lord, bigger than ourselves. And today, Lord, specifically to your kingdom, teach us, Jesus, what it means to belong to the kingdom of heaven. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So for the last number of weeks, we've been in the Old Testament prophets. I'm sorry you missed it if you weren't here. It's been a good time. Uh, We've been with our brother Jeremiah and Isaiah and Zechariah. We've um, 
We've had a tour of the Old Testament prophets. What a gift. And this week, we're shifting gears a bit in, back into the Gospels and specifically to Jesus and his teaching about the kingdom of heaven. Um, but we would be remiss not to note that there is a very important through line, an important connection between what's happening these last number of weeks in our study of the Old Testament prophets all the way to the kingdom of heaven. I don't think that it's an accident, for example, that the compilers of the lectionary, um, if, you're not, if you're new to the lectionary, uh, we don't decide what we teach and preach from. It's been decided for us. A uh, centuries-old Bible teaching and reading plan put together a long time ago, I believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And when these people were deciding texts that should go together... Um, they chose the Old Testament prophets to build towards the gospel of Jesus for a very specific reason, and that's because there is a through line. If you'll remember, we started this summer looking at Genesis 1, and then we went into the Old Testament prophets. Weird. Why would you stu start a study on the prophets in Genesis 1? And that's because, I'm glad you asked, that's because Genesis 1, we are introduced to God's vision for the world. Hard to overstate the significance of those first couple of chapters. God is painting a picture for us, helping us see what it is that he hopes for. Yes, what happened, but also like who he is and how he thinks about the world and how he wants to relate, us to relate to one another, us to relate to him, us to relate to creation. It's a beautiful vision that he outlines in Genesis 1. And I want to spend some time going back over that vision so we can connect to the prophets, so we can connect to the kingdom of heaven. And here's why. Because otherwise, the way that we think about Jesus will be totally disconnected from all of that stuff. Jesus, when he shows up in the New Testament, he was, he was and he wasn't announcing something new. That first heavy half of your Bible um, is not just a warm-up for Jesus. Jesus is the continuation and the fulfillment of something that started a long time before he was born. And how we understand that has everything to do with how we'll hear what he has to say about the kingdom of heaven, what it means, what it is that he was announcing and doing. So here's the vision. It also matters, I would say, very much for your own everyday life. In the beginning, literally, in Genesis 1, God, through his spirit, hovers over this chaos and rescues creation out of chaos and by his spirit creates new life, draws out literally land and light and living things out of the chaos. God introduces himself, in other words, as a rescuer. And what it means for God to exercise his God muscles, to flex in a God way, is to rescue creation out of chaos and make new life. Incredible. And then out of that creation, he raises up human beings. And apparently, interestingly enough, God wants to endow these human beings with this same authority and power that he also has. Creating them in his own likeness is the language of the text. Did you know that the first time that we hear about human beings ruling and reigning is here? In Genesis 1. See if you remember the verse. This is Genesis 1, verse 28. It says this, God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it 
and have dominion and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. I am so grateful to know that God has given us license to just do whatever we want with the world. To just use it, abuse it, however we need to, to accomplish our purposes. Biblical mandate, who knew? And we laugh, but that's exactly how we'll read it and understand it, unless we know what it means to exercise dominion or to rule. And according to the story, to the text, if we stay here in the Bible, the only image that we have of what it means to exercise dominion and to rule is what God has done. And what did it look like for God to exercise authority and rule? Flex his muscles. How did he flex? Rescue. Creating new life. So, the vocation of the human is to rule and reign with God, who is over creation, reigning over it, to exercise dominion and authority in his likeness, which means we too will have to be rescuers and people who create new life and make peace. That's the vocation given to the human. Oh, and God loves it. He loves this vision. It is good. It is very good in Hebrew. I don't, I don't believe in ancient Israel they were doing the like V-E-R-R-R-R-R-Y thing that we now do in text. But if that could be reflected in Hebrew, it would be reflected in Genesis 1. This is an exceedingly good creation. He loves it. He loves this plan. The idea of God reigning over creation, giving power and rule to humans, very beginning of our story. Ah. Alas, the chaos returns. God has rescued us out of, in Hebrew, tohu vabohu, wild chaos. He's created this beautiful world. He's entrusted it to us as his stewards. And yet, in Genesis 3, the tohu vabohu returns. The chaos returns. And what is fascinating about the biblical story, y'all, is that this pattern, this story, this vision that God has, his heart for the world, it gets told over and over and over again. Because what happens with the chaos? Well, now I guess we're going to have to go in and rescue. That's who God is. That's what he does. And how does God rescue? Well, he raises up new life, specifically a fellow named Abraham. God calls Abraham appoints another human, says to Abraham, be fruitful and multiply, exercise dominion and rule, except he doesn't say it exactly that way. He says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing, bless the world. And through Abraham, he raises up a people, a new humanity. Same plan. It's not novelty. By the time we get to Genesis 12, we're just retelling the creation story. This is the vision. This is the plan. So raises up Abraham, Father Abraham, raises up the 12 tribes of Israel, and then we end up in Egypt. Oh, no. Tohu vabohu. Chaos returns. We are back in slavery, back in chaos. So God, the rescuing, peacemaking, shalom-making God, what does he do? The same thing he's always done. He appoints a person, a human being, a rescuer. He goes to Moses, and he says, Moses, I want you to redeem my people, deliver them. So he does. 
Through Moses, he raises up a new people, takes Israel out of slavery in Egypt, sets them free, constitutes them as not just a wandering tribe, lost slaves, but he makes them a people governed by his law. That's Deuteronomy and Exodus. And then we get all the way into the times of the judges, and oh man, we need a king. And so God gives us King David, and now we have the kingdom of Israel through David, a new people, a kingdom, and then... Tohu vabohu, we go into exile. And if you've heard this before, fantastic. I'm so glad. Here's why it matters. Because when your Old Testament ends, the question on everyone's mind, the theological question and the question for every person is, how is God going to make good on his vision, his promise to reign over creation partnered with people who are filled with his spirit and bearing his likeness in the world. How is that going to be real? How could it be real, especially now? So when you find yourself asking the question, how could it be real? The world's on fire. Church is a mess. How could it be real? The reason I think that it's important for the church to tell this story over and over and over again is so that we can be reminded that God is not surprised by the question or the situation that we find ourselves in and his commitment to how he responds to it is unchanging. It stays the same When Jesus shows up in the pages of the New Testament preaching about the kingdom of heaven, by the way, remember, he comes out of the wilderness, out of baptism, and then he starts preaching what? What does he say? First thing he talks about? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The golden rule? Turn your cheek, love your enemies, All of the famous Jesus sayings, his greatest hits that we know him for, that's all great. But that's actually not the thing that Jesus talks about the most. And if you disconnect those sayings, that great moral teaching, from the thing that Jesus was actually talking about, then they will seem utterly and totally irrelevant and unrelated. Why on earth would I try to love my enemies? Why on earth would I turn my other cheek when someone has struck me? Why on earth would I give someone my cloak? Why? The why is answered when Jesus comes out of the wilderness saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. Here. Now. In other words, pay attention. God is becoming king. Now. So all of you who have been asking the question, how is God going to make good on his promises? How is God going to fulfill his vision? If we don't understand that what Jesus was doing was in part answering that very big question, we'll miss something really critically important about who he is and what he was doing. Jesus, in other words, didn't y'all just show up to give us a really nice new religion? He did not come into the first century to be our moral exemplar. Even though, of course, he is that. 
He also didn't just come so that you would have a way to be saved and go to heaven. Although, of course, he wants that. When Jesus appeared in Galilee in the first century, his Jewish audience very much understand him to be saying, I am the way that God makes good on his promises to the entire cosmos. God is becoming king. All of those nice things that Jesus did was not just an example for you to follow. God was cleaning house, setting the world to rights, putting things back into their rightful place. So hear the gospel, church. Jesus loves me and he died for my sins so that I could go to heaven. I love that gospel. That is the gospel that I heard as a kid growing up, and it has saved me and my life. He does love me. He has ensured that I could go to heaven. But we also need to be able to make sure that if we're going to say the simple version, that we also know the bigger version. You hear me? Because if we simplify it by reducing it, then we'll miss something really important. Here's the gospel. Jesus is the culminating fulfillment of God's eternal vision for the world. Now, when I invite a friend who has never heard of Jesus before, that is probably not how I'm going to explain the gospel. That would be weird. Who is Jesus? Well, let me tell you, he is the culminating fulfillment of God's eternal vision for the world. (laughs) But we are the church. You need to know that Jesus is the culminating fulfillment of God's vision for the world. You need to know that. It is about your sin and your salvation. It's also all of us and everything. In the person of Jesus, God who is the eternal word put on our flesh, became a human being, and then filled by God's spirit, just like Adam, Filled by God's Spirit, he went out into the world, exercising the dominion and reign and rule of God. Just like Adam and Eve were commissioned to. How did he do it? What did that look like? How did he flex his God muscles? Well, that's the life of Jesus. The way he lived, it is that. That's what the reign and rule of God looks like. And then when Jesus had to defeat chaos again, he went to the cross so that he could push back the chaos, our enemy, so that he could defeat it on our behalf. And then God raised him up like he had raised up Adam and Abraham and Moses and David before him so that he could, through him, constitute a new people. That's you. A new humanity. And to the Lord, you need to know that when God looks out over the church, the same Lord who looked out over a brand new humanity and a brand new creation who said, it is very good, that God, I believe, looks at his church this way. Now, he may do that like this sometimes. (laughs) But you are not an accident. You are not a mistake. He does not regret the church. We are the humanity that have been constituted by his spirit. That is true for us corporately, and it is true for you individually. What does that have to do with my actual life, preacher lady? Everything. 
has everything to do with your life. Can you imagine if when God, who formed Adam out of the dirt, shaped him, molded him with all this love in his heart, made him beautiful, and then he bent down with all the tenderness of a father and he breathed life into his lungs so that Adam could stand up on his feet. If Adam, standing up on his feet, had stood before God Almighty and God had said, Adam, you are a new creation. I have made all things and I have given all authority and power endowed to me, to you, to steward and exercise authority in this world like me. What if Adam had looked at him and said, what does that have to do with my real life? I just don't understand. There is no other life. That's what the Lord did say. There is no other life. Christ is king. The kingdom has come, has come, is coming. The rule and reign of God is available to you and through you. Don't minimize your life, and God won't. Don't minimize the significance of your hands, and he won't. Don't minimize your gifting, your calling, your ability to love, the power of the Holy Spirit working through you, because he for sure has not and will not. Christ is king, and you are therefore okay. And sometimes I just need to hear that. I need to be reminded that the kingdom of heaven has come, that I am safe within this kingdom, that Christ is king, and I'm okay. Whatever you're going through, however hard it is, the kingdom of heaven has come and you're safe within it. Christ is king and you are going to be okay. This vision for God is old and deep and long and so much bigger and better than we are able to grasp in little bits every single day but it's bigger and better, not smaller. You know, when I was praying about whether or not to move to Arkansas and be a part of this church, I'm embarrassed to admit to you that I worried about the name of the church. Christ is King. <sighs> Sounds archaic, a little bit culturally out of touch. Nobody knows what Christ means, let alone how to have a king. You put them together. It's a cultural moment when the whole world is tired of the church, grabbing for power, trying to assert itself over culture. Why couldn't we be good shepherd? <laughs> or the river or something, you know? Christ is king. He is, though. And if I have to live my life redeeming for a world that does not understand 
what it means for him to be Christ or what it means for his kingdom to come, then so be it. I'm here for it. Because he is good. He is a good king. He is our good shepherd. And his kingdom comes not like Russia into Ukraine or America into Iraq. When his kingdom comes, it comes like a banquet that everybody wants to get in on, a party that people have to and want to be a part of. Isn't that good? Jesus set tables. He passed out bread and wine to hungry people. He healed people. He prayed for people. They sang songs, and it was their joy, like joy hidden in a field that somebody found and then buried so that nobody else would find it and take it from them. And then they realized, oh, wait, I'll just buy the whole field because the joy of it has set me free. I don't have to be stingy. I don't have to be mean-spirited. Just open my hands because the kingdom of heaven has come. So for you, church, the question for me, for us corporately, the we, is what will it mean for Christ to be king? For me individually, for us together, what will it look like for us to live into the ways of his kingdom? And we have the next several weeks to study, to read, to sit with the words of Jesus, to let him shape us and form us, but I want to extend an invitation to you. If you are still exploring Jesus, if you are on the outskirts listening and hearing, beautiful. You do that. But if you are here and you know that you are called by his name, you have been baptized, let me put it more simply, if you have been baptized, whether you knew you were getting baptized or somebody else baptized you without you knowing you were getting baptized, if you have been baptized, for you, Christ is king. And there is an invitation because he's good and kind for you to come and know what it means for nothing to separate you from the love that is in Jesus Christ, neither height nor depth, neither angels nor demons, nor rulers nor principalities, nothing in all creation separates you from the love that is in Jesus and the goodness that is this kingdom. Nothing. It's settled. He did it. Is finished. So come to the table. That's it. That's it. You don't have to do anything else. Just come eat. Come sing. Let's just be the church. Amen. Amen. Holy Spirit, Lord, draw us in, Jesus, to the fullness of your kingdom. Even here and now, Lord, we pray, Holy Spirit, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done, Jesus. And now, Lord, we bend our knee to you, and we pray. Have mercy, Father. Hear us and help us. In Jesus' name, amen.